Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 74. Well, here we are, my friends, heading into the last 10 days of 2022. And I'm so glad to be back with all of you for this last compilation episode during our exploration of this month's intention, The Healing Journey. Next week, I'll be back with a reflection episode, but this is our last compilation episode. So in case you missed the last two compilation episodes on how to heal with energy and how to heal with food, make sure that you go back and listen. Those are linked in the show notes for you. So this past year of 2022 has been one of so much growth and so much learning on this podcast. And so to celebrate all of this each week, we've presented a compilation, a best of type thing on three different topics with excerpts from our most popular episodes from this past year so that you can listen and learn again from our incredible guests and their priceless wisdom to help you really round out this year of 2022 and get ready for a beautiful new year of 20. 2023, with so many important learnings in mind as you sort of set your goals for your health and wellness. And be sure that you share these compilation episodes with your friends and family, anyone you think that might benefit from this information, as these are a really great way to support someone that you care about on their healing journey, all packed into 45 minutes. So this week, we're exploring the healing journey of the mind and how to heal the mind with four of my guests from this past year. First up are Dr. Ellen Vora and Dr. Thinmeet Sethi discussing the healing power of psychedelic medicine and plant medicine ceremony. Next is Pyle Berry, who explains why an empathy mindset starts with self-compassion. And finally is Dr. Romy Mushtaq who talks about the science of meditation and its effects on the brain. I hope that you enjoy this compilation on the healing journey of the mind with my guests, Dr. Ellen Vora, Dr. Thanmeet Sethi, Pyle Berry, and Dr. Romy Mushtaq. This first excerpt for the healing journey of the mind is with Dr. Ellen Vora and Dr. Thanmeet Sethi. Dr. Vora is a board-certified psychiatrist, medical acupuncturist, and yoga teacher. She takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, considering the whole person and addressing imbalance at the root rather than reflexively prescribing medication. She focuses on everything from physical health, sleep, nutrition, digestion, thought patterns, relationships, and community to our connection with nature and creativity and the ways that we find meaning in life. Her first book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, has been a bestseller since it was published back in March, and I recommend it to all of you. It's really a paradigm shift in how we think about anxiety. My second guest on this episode is Dr. Thanmeet Sethi, who is a board-certified integrative physician, speaker, and educator who has worked with thousands of patients for over a decade in a large urban hospital, serving as an advocate for marginalized populations, women, and children. What she's discovered is that while illness may appear in many forms, 
it almost always stems from a common source, a disconnection from spirituality and healthy foods that feed your body, mind, and soul. She's witnessed transformative results in her patients from practicing gratitude, prayer, breathing, and cooking and mindful eating. Dr. Sethi is also a TEDx speaker and her first book, Joy is My Justice, is coming out very soon in May of 2023. In this excerpt, Ellen, then Meath, and I discuss everything that you want to know about psychedelic medicines, what they are, how they work, the history of psychedelic plant medicine in indigenous cultures, and the importance of community and ritual and healing. This is a beautiful conversation between three friends and colleagues, one that I hope really serves you on your healing journey. Here are Dr. Ellen Vora and Dr. Thanmeeth Sethi. I have gotten so many questions from people about psychedelics, about plant medicine and trying to understand, you know, is it for me? Is it not for me? And I think the biggest question, maybe it's gotten to be even more of a popular question probably over the past two years <laughs> with everything with the pandemic, it's been in the media a lot. There's all these wellness companies popping up, you know, talking about psychedelic medicine. It's, you know, in the Wall Street Journal, it's in the New York Times, it's everywhere. So I think there's a lot of questions and confusion about, you know, what is it? Does it, would it work for me? So let's kind of jump in there. So maybe the place to start is, asking both of you, what are psychedelic medications or medicines? How do, you know, what are they? Let's start there. So I'll take a first stab at this. Um, it's a heterogeneous category of medications and it's, um, it can be many things. We're in a moment right now where it's a little bit of a, you know it when you see it, but there are a lot of different approaches. The way I think about it is that, you know, I think about classical psychedelics, we have things like um, the ones that are being most closely studied for therapeutic uses are things like psilocybin um, and ketamine, less so being studied, but ayahuasca is certainly in the mix. And then there's a lot of research around MDMA, which would typically not be considered a classical psychedelic, but is sort of grouped together in this new renaissance of taking a different approach to mental health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think Ellen, just to build on that, because I, I love that intro to, it really is so hard to put them all together for, um, in one category, but I think that really in the end, we could think as well about these categories of compounds being plants of the, of way of really shifting consciousness is why I think they all have come into such focus. And so their, their mechanisms of action are different. Their effects are somewhat the same, some different, you know, I mean, there's lots of overlap, but in the end, what we're talking about are plant medicines, even the ones that are synthesized originally came from an honoring of plants and ancestral indigenous knowledge of those plants. And so what we're really looking at are uh, classes of compounds and plants that are really being shown to in science for what they have been doing for millennia, which is really shifting consciousness and helping us look inward so that we can look outward with more connection and openness. Mm -hmm. So beautifully said. I want to just jump and play off of that a little bit. Yes, um, please. I think that that really is the commonality. And in a way, you know, you said it so well to meet there's, there's ways that they work similarly. Um, and there's ways that they all work differently. And there's many of them have an impact on our serotonin signaling. 
and many of them are active at the 5-HT2A receptor in the brain. So it has a little bit of an echo of what we're working with already with our you know, psych, you know, psychotropic medication. And many of them are actually anti-inflammatory, which is interesting and plays off of a more cutting edge understanding of how mental health and really our physical health in general uh, is so influenced by levels of systemic inflammation. And then there's the neuroplasticity idea of increased secretion of BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which helps our brains become more, you know, it, it promotes neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, which to translate that we can grow and change and adapt. But to circle back around to what you said so well, that it's all about shifting consciousness. Mm-hmm. What I find most exciting and promising about this category of psychedelic and psychedelic adjacent medicines is that the best way I heard it described was reverse PTSD. And this pertains to the mystical experience hypothesis, where the more we actually have a peak mystical experience in a psychedelic ceremony, the more we feel an experience that we would describe as awe, um, then that is actually correlative with the positive effect and, and how enduring the positive effect is. So the efficacy has to do with not just whatever is biochemically occurring in the ceremony, but it has something to do with the experience itself and how we subjectively experience it and how much it takes us to a place of spirituality and awe. And that's what's so interesting because that's a very different way of approaching mental health than what we currently have with our pharmaceutical products. Yeah. So it's this beautiful integration of the actual uh, physiological effects of these medications or medicines on the body and at the neurotransmitter ends and, and how, how it's affecting those neurotransmitters and the reuptake or, you know, letting them be there, et cetera. But it's also what you're talking about, this other experience that is beyond that, which is the combination almost, it seems like is what you guys are saying is, is what sort of is the magic in them in a way. Yeah. And I think what Ellen, what you're describing so succinctly is the exciting part to me too, about these medicines is that, um, it really feels like at least in my, you know, short medical career or quarter century, which is short in the long term, right? (laughs) It feels like the first time I've ever seen us not only Avanti, even further than that, there's something biochemically happening and something mystical happening, but how are those playing into each other? Mm -hmm. Right. And that to me is the whole new world of what I was exposed to in medical school, where if you had a mystical experience and that feeling of awe and something greater and vaster than what you know to be this universe, it was like a woo-woo thing that you had on the side. Mm -hmm. And now what we're exploring is that you know, you can put the woo-woo aside and you can see that the biochemistry is actually linked to our spirituality. And, and we don't understand it yet. I'm, I'm not saying we have a sense of what that means, but for me, it feels like a way of bringing together that the way we connect to a vast, uh, greater sense of this world actually has to do with how we also are processing 
what's happening in our brain and our chemistry. And somehow those are linked, even though we don't understand it. So it's amazing, really. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. So let's, before we get into the ceremony, let's just rewind for a second. There's so many questions I have. I'm like scribbling on my paper here. Let's just go back to, I know that there's different different mechanisms of action, but maybe you guys could go through sort of how do these different ones work? How do they actually, what's the mechanism of how they work? And maybe we could go through a few of the, the more popular ones that people are hearing about so that they understand the biochemistry before we jump into the mystical and the spiritual. Yeah, I, I think I'll, you'll see me quickly push up against the limitations of my expertise on this. I've mm-hmm. sort of, I haven't really broken it down in that way, but when I look at the research, I'll see a lot of the research on ketamine seems mm-hmm. to be focused on the BDNF neuroplastic function. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of this idea of, especially if you do this kind of build up of four treatments and then, and they're sort of spaced apart in an intentional way. And then there's this window of neuroplasticity, which I find as a therapist to be really exciting because then I sort of catch my patients as they come out of the window, they're in the window, they come out of their ketamine treatments and let's move, you know, let's really capitalize on this opportunity to rewire, to uh, reframe and to really shake everything up and let things be up for grabs. I think ketamine also has this other interesting um, way that it's really potently healing is that it is a dissociative. And I find that all of these different medicines have different ways of helping people work through trauma. And the dissociative quality is interesting in that the same way someone might approach a traumatic memory, and then it's almost like they instantly go into a stress response, which is not a very fruitful state of mind to heal or or change our, our, our thoughts. You know, it's the same as if you're in a fight with your partner and it's like, okay, we're having a, a supportive, sympathetic conversation. We're trying to work through a problem and then somebody trips a wire and one person is triggered mm-hmm. and then nothing fruitful happens anymore. We just become sort of animals up against right. the wall and we were triggered into a fight or a flight or a tend and befriend or a freeze response. And so a lot of my patients, when we come up against something traumatic from their past, their body goes into a stress response and we can't really do much change. But when they're under, when they're in ceremony with ketamine and they're dissociated from their body, it's almost like that stress response doesn't um, grip them. And so they can really be with the thoughts, be with the memory and, and look at it without getting overwhelmed by the stress response, without it shutting down fruitful thoughts. And so that's one interesting thing with ketamine. And I'll pause for a moment, but there's things to be said about psilocybin and how it's active at increasing global connectivity, which we don't know what that means, but it's interesting Mm -hmm. to sort of see the scans of brains under in a psilocybin treatment and how active and interconnected it is. Um, And we can talk about the default mode network as well, but I'm curious to hear what Tamit wants to add in first. Oh, I mean, I think that was a good summary. I think I, I, I feel like that the brain scans really do, are really fascinating. So Ellen referred to some of the biochemistry. And then when we think about psilocybin, we're thinking more about that serotonergic receptor biochemistry. Mm-hmm. But when we look at those scans, you know, what they really see is that they turn down that self-referential network, the way that we really judge ourselves, but also look at ourselves in the world. And we're able to 
put ourselves in the world in a in a different way. We're able to connect to others. In some way, I don't quite understand this. MDMA, for instance, has been shown to turn down attention switching and really give us more attention outward and in the way that we can really open to the world and feel less, like Ellen was saying, fearful. I don't quite understand that, but it's it's amazing research that's emerging. And then we really, when we think about it in the terms that most people are used to, we really think of that amygdala and what people think of as the fear center. Although I would call it an emotional center, not a fear center, but I feel like that's how it's brought out in the, I don't know if you'd agree with that, Ellen, my psychiatry expert, but in the amygdala, it seems that and both MDMA and psilocybin can actually ramp down the difficult emotions that like Ellen was saying, can get in the way of processing that trauma and also seeing things with that more, more clarity. And then MDMA also has been shown to increase oxytocin and prolactin. So those connectivity hormones the ways that we bond and connect not only to others, but to ourselves, Yes, that we actually see ourselves as um, more human and, and to be accepted. Um, so that self-love and acceptance is really big when we're working through those traumas. So that's just a little more on that. Yeah. And what I'll just add to that is my own personal experience, because I, I think I've shared this before on the podcast. I've actually done ketamine treatments and what both of you are describing is actually putting into words what I've experienced through my ketamine treatments. I did the, you know, a series of six treatments um, over two and a half weeks about was the protocol when I did it about two years ago, um, actually a year and a half ago. And I will say that the, the experience that I had was all of the things you said. I had a decreased sort of stress response. I mean, I could, I remember things coming up during the treatments, probably about three treatments in. And all of a sudden I didn't have this fear response or this, you know, um, excited sort of stress response to it. I sort of was like, Oh, okay. And I just was able to be with it. Um, and I think what you were saying Thanmeet, also is that for me, the experience was also a lot more about seeing myself differently. Um, and I, you know, I don't know, it's hard to put it into words when you've been through it, but you guys have done a pretty good job of it for me. So thank you for that. But um, yeah, that's been my experience uh, of ketamine. So I think that connects to this default mode network conversation that, yes, that we should please. have, which, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm so curious to hear what Samit has to say also about the, the DMN, but it's, it's really interesting. It's this part of our brain geographically where we hang out when we're not actively engaged in a task. And, um, what I find what, or what I've decided how I make sense of the default mode network is when we're not actively engaged in a task and when we're not really present in the present moment, what happens is our mind, we, we have our habits. Many of us start future tripping and being anxiously anticipating something in the future, or we dwell on the past and we sort of get consumed with um, regret, um, grief about the past. And so those tendencies, they seem to also overlap with our understanding of our, our limited sense, our narrow definition of the self, that I am separate from others. And these are my problems. This is what I'm worried about in the future and what I'm not happy about from the past. And when the default node mode network 
is quieted in a psychedelic ceremony, not only are we better able to be present, but it almost dissolves this narrow definition of the self. And we start to feel an expansion. It's almost like if you ask someone in ceremony, what are the boundaries of you? Of you? And rather than like me or me, my family, it sort of becomes like, well, I feel pretty connected with all of New York City. Wait, all of humanity. Wait, all <laughs> sentient beings. Wait, the whole earth. Wait, yes. the universe. And yes. you start to feel really expansive. Yes. And man, is that the self to what ails us as a society right now. Like we need to start recognizing how interconnected we are, how we're not separate from others suffering, how, you know, it, it motivates pro-social behavior of looking out for others. Um, it, it, almost from a selfish stance, but who cares whatever it takes, but it's almost like to start to feel interconnected. We get a little bit less myopically bogged down in our own problems, but we also start to feel really engaged with um, like w- we want to step up and take purposeful action in a way that pertains to a much broader definition of what matters to us. I, I think that might be the best description I've heard of the default mode network. Ellen. Yeah. It's, it's often presented as kind of thinking about the ruminating mind. And I think the way that Ellen expanded on that is much more whole than just that, that I just love that description. And, and I think that that ego, it's, it's ego dissolution or a sense of self dissolving, however you want to think about it, is really what, if we think about why these medicines, these plants are so important, it's that, you know, that is really why we have survived. Our ancestors had experiences with these plants and without these plants. Um, you don't have to have a psychedelic ceremony to have an experience of awe and vastness, but Really, the research on awe alone is actually amazing and and really growing. But what we find is that people, our ancestors really had these experiences and then really had more curiosity about what this world was about and how to tend to all of the earth and all of us the way that Ellen was describing. And so, you know, we could use a lot more of that now. I agree. And when I think about it like that, I just think that the default mode network quieter it is, the more we're able to see things with clarity and love, you know, really. But I don't, I I feel like that description really encapsulates what they're looking at in the studies and what we've seen also in studies of meditation as well. Yeah. Really commonalities around brain scans and default mode networks. So just these different ways to come at widening our lens and expanding our sense of what we are and what this world can be. Right. I mean, you you just click something into place for me Mm. that has never, I've never, these two synapses have never connected in my brain before (laughs) this moment, but basically, you know, I, I have this book about anxiety coming out right now. So I've been doing a lot of talking about anxiety and the question of, you know, anxiety boils down to fear. It boils down to survival. And and I haven't had a good answer for this, but if you'll allow me to kind of think out loud about something you just made me understand in a new way. Yes. I think that, you know, that, that saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others Mm -hmm. and anxiety and fear does boil down to, um, how we've survived. You know, it's anticipating potential negative consequences as they pertain to our, you know, our own ego, our own self, and maybe our immediate surroundings. 
But in a way, what's happening in the world right now, so here's how I'm thinking about it. On the proverbial savanna of evolution, human beings, we were never the strongest. We were never the fastest. Mm -hmm. The reason we survived was because we were the ones who figured out how to cooperate. And that's part of why we need community to feel safe, to feel calm. Um, but I think it pertains to these two different kinds of survival that our anxiety pertains to. There's survival of the individual, but then there is survival of the collective. And that's also in our hardwiring. And, and I think part of what we can achieve when more of us work within pathogens, find a place of being undefended, find a place of quieting the default mode network and dissolving that narrow sense of the self is that we're leaning more into not just survival of the individual, but survival of the collective. Whoa. Need to take that in. Yeah. Yeah. It actually, Ellen, I could talk about this for hours, but the reason that I've been thinking so much about this is it's actually in the book that I'm writing because I have been thinking about this idea and of justice in our body but then how that contributes to justice in the world. And that's how this really came together for me in the sense of really how have we contributed to a collective for millennia and how do we need to remember and honor that so that we can actually go forward instead of what feels like a time where we may be going backward. So I really love the way you put those synapses together because it's really reaffirming for me what I've been really writing about and, and just muddling with. It's almost like we're being asked to go far or we finally have an opportunity to go far or in a way we have no choice because we've, as you put it, like we're hyperpolarized. There's so much excavation of all of the injustices and all of the wrongs and harm done that we're finally staring at how far we have to go. And so we can't just go fast alone. We need to find these inroads to going far. Yeah. In company. Yeah. And I don't know if, if you, either of you have read a, the overview effect or writings about that, but it's really these sort of compilation of writings from astronauts who have been in space and seeing the earth from space and the, the, Quotes and writings are actually mind boggling. But what you really find is that seeing that this is actually this encapsulates a psychedelic experience so much for me is that one astronaut um, actually said that after seeing the earth from so far away and in its wholeness and in its fragility and beauty, I could not think of anything but the fact that we must tend to it with everything we have. You know, and I actually get a chill when I, mm -hmm. that isn't an exact quote, but that's a summary of what this astronaut said. And psychedelic plants allow us that zoom out overview effect where we see whatever the earth is the metaphor for whatever it is where man, sometimes we see the earth, mm -hmm. but sometimes we see just our life from an overview that allows us to understand that actually what we need to do is care for this in a different way that we are so much more a part of it. And it is bigger than we understood to, you know, before we did this. So yeah, I think it's all wrapped into that awe and that feeling of oneness and vastness. So both at the same time. Yeah. Love that imagery that it's like a spiritual experience to look yes. down at the earth from space. And I, it, what I'm picturing is almost like looking at the earth 
the way you would look at a newborn baby and you Mm. sort of see it in its divinity and its vulnerability all at once. And you're like, why wouldn't I completely reorganize my brain and my life in order to keep this safe and help it thrive? Yes. That's beautiful. You know, the thing that was coming up for me is this idea in our spiritual traditions, at least, you know, um, from South Asia is this idea of not being separate from whatever you believe is God, the one, the almighty, right? And so maybe the separation is also about don't be separate from other people, which I think I understood that, but this is bringing it to another understanding that, you know, that our our ancestors for millennia have understood this in a very, very real way that there should be no separateness. It's sort of that we need each other to survive, to overcome the fear, the anxiety, the the depressive thoughts, whatever it is, basically to overcome sort of the the illusions of the mind, right? That we can do that by being in community with others and being with others. So um, there's a lot to think about there. Wow. So let's jump back into, you know, this idea of this mystical, the mystical experience that you were sort of describing Ellen and then Meath as well, you know, these plant medicines have been used for millennia by, you know, so many indigenous cultures and traditions and their healing ceremonies. And so let's talk about the ceremony around them, because I know both of you know quite a bit about that. I think it's really important to honor that and to understand the ceremony of these plant medicines and why they're so sacred. So wherever you guys want to start on that. I think this, there's so many layers to this. So I think I'll just start and I think we can build on it, Ellen, together. But for me, ceremony is medicine. And so, mm. and that, that comes not only from my culture and, you know, Ayurveda, but also from what I've learned in Western training, which is the lack thereof, and how when we bring back and restore the um, the concept and the ritual of ceremony, how that is healing in of itself. And so I ask anyone who's interested in these plants and learning more to really think about the ceremony of medicine and healing and how that can be undertaken in a way that has reciprocity with the earth and the land and those cultures that brought us this wisdom. And I, and I really can't start a discussion about ceremony without honoring that without that reciprocity, we will just become reductionist of bringing these back into the newest SSRI or, you know, the newest medication we can offer. And, and, and I mean this from a way of, um, even when I give my patients, which it is less often, but I do give my patients SSRIs when I do use them, I actually use them ceremonially. So I offer them to patients, you know, I don't have, I'm old enough to have had written prescriptions and now we don't, but I actually offer it to them as a part of the whole of what can be a tool in this healing process and what it could hope to unlock so that they can do this work that their body is offering them the the signal or the message to work on. And I think that the way that these plants have been ceremonially used for millennia offers us the chance to reconnect with how 
all ceremony is medicine and all medicine can be ceremonial because all of it can be honoring the way that we ingest, receive it in the body, the way that we have gratitude and appreciation for care, modern and ancient, you know, and so there's just so much there around ceremony. Um, I'll just stop there and let Ellen go and then we can keep building. But I feel like there's just so much, you know, we're, I'm in the middle, I'm on a team doing a study at the University of Washington. And um, we talked so much about how we wanted to how did we want to ceremonially offer this in a way that could be different, but yet not feel not authentic or appropriating of any one plant um, culture, any ceremonial culture? And so just honoring that these, these have been used differently and we can be different with them and that can be part of our healing. And I think that, you know, we need that in, in Western medicine for sure. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm going to need a massage after this conversation because I'm nodding along so vigorously. (laughs) I know. I wish, I wish the listeners could see the three of us just like, yes, yes, yes. So this is just a bath in this circle of uh, wise goddesses. So yeah, I agree completely. And I think this is, this is missing from Western medicine. It's missing from Western culture writ large. We, we, we are missing ritual. And in a way we haven't even talked yet about the caveats of, you know, who shouldn't be using this medicine, you know, mm-hmm. contraindications and set and setting, it's all important. But I think in a way, at the end of this, if someone feels motivated, um, but psychedelics are not the appropriate treatment for you, ritual is, you know, ceremony is, and it's part and parcel for the ways in which this medicine is sacred and therapeutic. And I think that um, this is somewhat of a personal story, but I remember the first time I was, I was in Brazil having my first experience with ayahuasca and it was probably at that point, four years after my mom passed away. And I was in, I think it was my second ceremony and the whole ceremony for me was a funeral. It was a funeral for my mom. That was my ceremony. That was my experience. And in it, in a, in a sort of magical thinking kind of way, I experienced as everyone was there honoring the life of my mom and in many ways, honoring my father, like what the burden he has to bear at this point. And, you know, it wasn't a somber occasion. It was joyous. There was music, there was drumming, there were tears, there was deep outpourings of grief, but there was feeling and feeling held and feeling connected and celebrating in a community. And I just felt like my mom was recognized. Her life was celebrated. The role, the, the, the position my dad is in right now was really held by the community. And at the end, I just came up from this ceremony and I was like, I could do a funeral. And it just felt like we don't, we, we missed the mark in so many ways and how we um, arrive and gather and, and mark in time these you know, enormous events of our lives. And I felt like now I felt satisfied that this had been properly marked. And I think about my, my colleague, Will Sue, he's a friend, he might, he's in LA now. He has a a thing that he says about psychedelics. He says, they're not just tools for healing trauma. They are here to help make spirituality palatable to our starving Western world. And I think, you know, Mm. you can, you can also we can go down that path as well. Um, but I think that there's something about how in this 
Western medicine approach that's starved of ritual. We are worshiping at the altar of science, which is a lovely idea in many ways, like the pursuit of truth. I'm in favor. Um, but I think that we've sometimes then we feel ashamed of intuition or spirituality or seeking, and it doesn't line up with what's acceptable, which is to be rational and objective and evidence-based. And I think that these, these medicines not only bring us back to ritual, but they also give us some permission to speak. And I think that's also medicine. Mm -hmm. Yes. The seeking is medicine because it's again, going back to something that's within some whispers that are coming from within, right? The seeking, when we seek out ourselves, I mean, I think maybe what I'm trying to put together is that, you know, seeking, as you said, is not necessarily seeking the information outside of ourselves. I believe that that seeking is really looking to find it within, but there's so much noise in this world that we live in that it is hard to hear it, right? And maybe one of the things you're suggesting or offering is that some of these plant medicines and the ritual around it allows us to go back and, and find some of that wisdom within us. Part of the reason we don't seek is the utter lack of stillness in yes. modern life. Yes. And, um, and I do like the way these medicines, they kind of autonomically floor you, a lot of them. <laughs> like you have no choice but to slow down and be still. The next excerpt for this compilation of the healing journey of the mind is with my friend Pyle Berry. Pyle is the founder of RK Empathy, a clinical psychologist and a PhD candidate in organizational psychology. With over 10 years of experience developing global leadership programs for Fortune 500 companies, including Groupon, Google, Boeing, Betterment, and McDonald's, She's a mindset coach, speaker, and facilitator for highly driven entrepreneurs and professional leaders. Her focus is on how empathy creates psychologically safe cultures that allow upward accountability. In this excerpt, Pyle and I discuss the important difference between empathy for others and empathy for self, the three types of empathy, and how to embody each. Here's Pyle Berry. So here's what's really interesting to me, because I know we've talked about empathy and because this is your research many times in our personal conversations. And you've told me a little bit about sort of the difference between empathy for others, which is what you kind of just described, which I think, again, so many of us try to really aspire to have. And those of us who go into the health professions, that's one of the things that's probably a very strong trait that we have. And that's why we choose those fields, right? So empathy for others is one thing, but then you always talk about this idea of empathy for self. So let's get into that difference. Yeah. So I'll start with a story. Actually, I was talking to a really good friend of mine and she was telling me how she doesn't believe that empathy really exists. She thinks it's complete BS and that it's a made up thing. It's a myth. And I got hmm. curious because obviously that's my research. Right. And, um, you know, I asked her, I'm like, well, share with me, like, what do you, what do you mean by that? You know, tell me more. And her thing was that she was having a very hard time, um, understanding or accepting the way that her brother and sister grew up in their family because it was so different from hers. And so she was having a hard time having empathy for them because her experience was so different. And so what, from there, we just kept talking. And what really it was is that she lacked having compassion for herself. She 
was holding on to a narrative that was creating these walls around her. And the thing is that when you don't have compassion for yourself, when you don't have empathy for yourself, and you're stuck in the space of, you know, defending the story that you have, um, you're having issues with trust, you're not able to get out of your own space, then it is going to be really hard to have empathy for anyone else because there's still this resentment brewing. There's this baggage you're carrying and you're not able to separate yourself from what other people's experiences are and believe those as well. So without having that compassion for self, without understanding yourself and really being true with it and being, you know, really seeing you for who you are, it's anytime anyone is sharing anything about themselves, you will bring it back to you. So to have true empathy for others, you need to first be in a place of acceptance with yourself. And when you don't have that acceptance, then everything else will again, feel like it's personalized towards you. Okay. So this is actually, I'm going to challenge you a little here because this is okay. a hard one for me, right? Because I don't know that I necessarily, when I first started in my medical training, had any awareness of myself. I mean, I'm sure I did a little bit, but I mean, compared to where I am now at the age of 51 versus where I was at the age of 25, when I was in my training, right? That awareness of having empathy, as you would say, or compassion for self I would say that at that time, I would say that I was very empathic and I, I had a lot of empathy for all of the patients that I was seeing and all the, you know, everything that I was learning, I was so in a place of empathy for others. Yeah. So that's like a disconnect for me because how could I be having empathy for all these people? Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, not, it's not truly empathy. So the thing is that you know, again, we're taking in multiple situations or variables here, right? One, you're, you decided to be a doctor, you're going into the healing industry. Second, you're a South Asian woman who was probably from a young age, nurtured and ingrained to, you put yourself last, you put people For sure. forward, right? So all of that creates a dialogue. It creates a narrative that everyone else, I have to be here for everybody else. So you aren't having any empathy for yourself, but what happens is that you are now um, completely you're not dealing with your own things and you're displacing it with everyone else's. And so even as a clinical therapist, you know, there's always, there's a joke in clinical therapy that a clinical therapist is typically serving their population for them to figure themselves out. And once right. they have figured themselves out, then they're like, okay, I'm going to leave the field. I'm good. Yes. And so what happens is that, you know, the story that I shared is about someone who may have mistrust and distrust, right? With someone who is excessively giving more of themselves is that they are displacing anything that they're dealing with. And then at some point it's going to catch up and it's going to create resentment. It's going to create that same level of mistrust. It's going to be exhausting burnout. All of that will show up because you've been trained to think that it's selfish to give compassion to yourself. Okay. I got it. That's exactly where I landed. <laughs> That's pretty much my story. You yeah. know, this whole idea of always giving to everybody else and never giving to myself. So you're saying that yeah. when you understand that empathy for others first starts with empathy for self. So healthy empathy for others starts with mm. empathy with yourself, right? So we can give and give and give, but then in order to make sure that we don't overdo it, with others, then we're bringing it back to ourselves so we can have those boundaries. We can set those, you know, and one thing I always talk about is 
this conversation about ego and uh, this conversation that, you know, people, and I always joke around and say that the marketing department has done a great job with labeling ego as bad. <laughs> and I just think that, you know, that's not, that's not true. Ego is actually really good. We want ego. We just don't want only ego. And so it's the same thing is that the reason that your ego even exists and the, like, if you look at a job description and you're like, I'm going to apply to be an ego, what is that? It's essentially <laughs> the ego is um, protecting you from any kind of pain, any kind of discomfort, uncomfort, right? And so it doesn't know the difference between bad or good. It just knows that it's uncomfortable and it's painful. And what else is uncomfortable and painful? Self-awareness. It's, that is something that is uncomfortable because, and it's painful because you're having to accept yourself in a way. So it's easier to continue to be there for everyone else and to continue to keep going until your ego has now created this space where there's no room for entry of self-awareness. And then it again, catches up with you. So that's where I say that the, when you're able to let your ego know and have a partnership with your ego and say, Hey, ego, go take your lunch break. I actually need to deal with this. <laughs> and you can have a moment of, okay, this is feedback that I do need to accept. This is something that I realize that if I really want to have empathy for other people, and if I really want to be present with them, mm -hmm. then it's going to be really important for me to acknowledge what is hard and challenging. Because what happens is that as empaths, you put yourself over and over in situations where someone may be like, are you a masochist? Because you're thinking that, you know, you went through something that was traumatic and you feel that it's necessary for me to help this person out who's gone through the same thing, but I have not yet dealt with that. So I may be able to show up for them, but then I'm going home and eating poorly. I'm not working out. Um, I'm compensating with maybe drinking, you know, my five o'clock drinks every night, but I'll do anything to not deal with it because we have assigned our ego to be on 24 seven and not actually allow it to say, Hey, you know what? This is something that's important. If I want to be there and have healthy empathy for others, then I need to be and have health and healthy ego that allows me to deal with this pain that I'm going through. Okay. So much to unpack there. Like when you said that whole thing about, you know, your ego is designed to protect you against pain and what is the most painful thing, but self-awareness. I'm like, shit, that's so true. <laughs> like, I mean, right there, that's the nugget from this whole episode. I'm sure like your ego is protecting you from anything painful and what's more painful than being self-aware. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Pretty and much that's nothing. Why, that's why like people would rather, you know, like they say, right. Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. So that's fascinating. People who tend to be highly empathic, sometimes they get frustrated because they go overboard and then they don't realize the repercussions of what they said they impulsively committed to because they were just in this place of empathic happiness. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is that because your brain is mirroring it, you can sometimes especially in leadership, be put in positions and situations where, for example, you're having a challenging conversation, you're having a difficult conversation. Someone is, you know, in a really bad state. And so you start marrying that and you start thinking it's yours. And then you start impulsively making decisions that you don't realize the consequences it may have on the rest of the team. 
So when you can become aware, it's kind of the same thing as when you go into um, a doctor's office and you finally get like diagnosed with something you're like, oh, finally, I have an explanation. So in that same way, there's three types of empathy that exist so that you can actually tap into it and recognize what's happening with you and um, approach it in the right way. So there's cognitive empathy, emotional empathy, and compassionate empathy. Okay. So cognitive empathy is when you intellectualize someone else's feelings. So you're not necessarily feeling it. You're not in that mirroring stage yet. You can understand and recognize that this person is sad and you under, you, you, it makes sense to you, but you're not emotionally feeling it yourself. Emotional empathy is where the mirroring starts. And that's where, you know, if you say, you know, let's say, let's just say that someone had like, um, a loss in their family, you know, and so you actually can feel the pain of that. Someone lost Mm -hmm. their job. You can feel the pain of that. Compassionate empathy is where you feel compelled to now do something about it. So you understand it, you're emotionally feeling it and you're compelled. So think about all those puppy commercials, orphanage commercials, you know, politicians use this really well in order to get you to pick up the phone and donate, right? Right. That's compassionate empathy. So when, like with the clients that I work with who are highly empathic and they are always having empathy for others, what they struggle with is they feel that because I have so much empathy, I'm not a great leader. And I say, no, that's not true. Empathy is great thing, but you have to learn to realize and tap into which one you need at what point. So you can be aware of when you're going into something. So if you're going to have a negotiation, if you're going to have something, a challenge that, you know, a conflict of some sort, having cognitive empathy, where you can say things like, I understand that you're feeling this way. It helps your brain recognize and not go into the mirroring stage so that you're able to stay very um, intentional about the conversation you're having, but you're still using language to have empathy. If you have emotional empathy, then that's really great when you're mentoring somebody, when you want to, uh, when you're having a conversation with someone who may feel frustrated, they're not sure about what they can do. Maybe they failed something, you know, it could be at your kids, your husband, wife, whoever, right? Your friend. And you want to cheer them up that empathy, empathic cheerfulness that happens. That's where, you know, again, you feel what they're feeling, but then by using language or saying that, you know, I can understand how you feel so sad. I've been there before. This is something you share an experience. Compassionate empathy is when someone, let's just say, um, lost their father or lost a you know significant other and they need time off from work, things need to happen. That's where you step into compassion, empathy and being able to say that, hey, you know what? I'm so sorry you're feeling this way. And you know, one thing that I also tell people is that when you're thinking about empathy, a lot of times people think that empathy means that I, you know, well, how am I going to understand what they've gone through? I've never lost a parent. I don't know. Right. That may be different, but have you ever felt grief? Have you ever felt sadness? So I always tell people tap into the feeling, the feeling. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you this. So these are great examples because again, I think so many of us, when we think about an empathy mindset, we're thinking about how we're putting it out to others. Now let's turn the mirror towards ourselves. How do you apply the identification of these three types of empathy for yourself to sort of have that discussion almost like with yourself rather than with the other person? Can we talk about that? So this is where, 
You got to tell your ego, go take a lunch break, maybe take a one week vacation even because it's painful. And it's about really first taking those baby steps. Um, I can share my own example of, you know, when I, I got diagnosed with hypothyroid when I was 17 Mm. and I didn't know what that, like, I didn't understand it. You know, I was ditching classes to sleep in my car, like not to do anything cool, but literally just to sleep in my car. And, um, 15, 14 hours, you know, I gained a lot of weight, a lot of things were happening. My dreams to go to like Harvard were like completely cut. And I went to a community college and transferred. Um, and I became a victim of this illness. I became that this is done to me. And so there came a point where I realized that, you know, we have two choices in a narrative. Either I can continue to play victim to what is happening, or I can decide to create a narrative and take power back over how I'm going to let this be. So instead of being that I am and someone who has hypothyroid, you know, it was really looking at it as like hypothyroid exists and that's something that I have a challenge with, you know, it's not me. It's not me. It's not my identity. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest things is shifting your identity. It's being able to sit down and really writing out. And I think I'd really encourage everyone to do this is that, you know, we suppress so much of how we really think of ourselves. It's automatically going in our brains, but we are not acknowledging it. And so writing it all down of every narrative that you've heard about yourself since you're growing up, you know, like I've been told I'm, you know, I talk too much. I'm too loud. I'm lazy, you know, all of these things. And I took those on as my identity. And I took those on as saying that, yeah, I am lazy. That's why this is not going to happen. So then I wouldn't even bother trying with something. And when I wrote all of the things down, the worst things that someone could probably say to you and that you probably think about yourself. And I wrote every single thing down and started bawling and crying and reading it. And I read it to myself in the mirror. Ooh. Oh yeah. (laughs) I went there. And it took time. It took time, right? It wasn't just like I wrote it down and went to the mirror, but like I wrote it down. I continued writing it down, took about like, it was a few days of this. And then I went to the mirror and I read it to myself. And then I had this sense of relief because it was like, now it's out there. I said it all. There's nothing else that can be said about me in a way that I haven't already put out there. And now I can look at this and start to reframe this one sentence at a time, one piece at a time, starting to shift my relationship with who I am, starting to look at success differently, which is something that I've recently been doing. You know, this change of conversation about what is success like? And to me now, I change it from this monetary number, from where my business is going to be. And now I look at it as an everyday, what, what happened today where I added value? What happened today that gave my, me peace of mind, where my body felt like it was actually feeling a little normal today. And that doing that on a continuous daily, you know, exercise really shifts the way that you see yourself. And then you start to actually acknowledge the value that you have. You start to acknowledge um, the, the impact that you're making in your own life. And you start to filter out 
energies of people that were essentially um, validating an old narrative that no longer belongs to you. Right. So what you're saying is that that very powerful exercise of writing and then moving to the mirror was actually how you shifted your identity mm-hmm. from that victimhood to a new one, but it was through empathy for self. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. It was through that development of having compassion for self. I've asked clients of mine, tell me something that you love about yourself. And there's crickets chirping for five minutes. Yeah. Because they can acknowledge and they'll say, I'm like, well, you're a really great artist. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, yeah. No, I need you to say that, you know, that the art that I create comes from a place of love. I have a lot of love flowing in me. And when they say that, they start crying because it's mm-hmm. the first time that yeah. there, it's it's finding that internal acceptance versus having someone else validate that for you. Right. Right. Wow, that's powerful. So that's really the shift of having an empathy mindset starts from within is really what you're saying, right? Is that it it starts like a true empathy mindset that is so powerful in supporting your health because it supports everything you're doing in the world and how you show up and how you feel about your body and your mind or your illnesses, right? Sort of the story you told us is that it starts with this awareness of self, shifting your identity and then having compassion for self. Then so that's really that empathy for self. And then you can mirror it out into the world much more authentically in a way that doesn't burn you out eventually. So let me ask you one last question as we round out our time together. If I offer up the phrase to catalyze healing, what comes up for you? I mean, I just think desire. That's just something that really comes up is that you have to desire, you have to choose you. And if you want to really be in that space of healing, every day when you choose to heal, you'll feel a difference because it's your choice, absolutely your choice. And you do not need to play victim. The last excerpt in this compilation of The Healing Journey of the Mind is with Dr. Romy Mushtaq. Dr. Romy is a board-certified physician, award-winning wellness speaker, and the founder of The Brain Shift at Work. She brings together over 20 years of authority and experience in neurology, integrative medicine, and mindfulness to not just deliver programs, but create cultural change. She's on a mission to transform mental health and wellness in the workplace and currently works with Fortune 500 companies, professional athletes, and global associations. Dr. Romy is also the chief wellness officer for Evolution Hospitality, where she scaled a mindfulness and wellness program for over 7,000 employees. Her expertise is also featured in the national media, such as NPR, NBC, TED Talks, and Forbes. In this excerpt, Dr. Romy takes us through the three phases of what happens in the body and the brain when we meditate, specifically the immediate effects, the short-term effects, and the long-term effects. Here's Dr. Mushtaq. What actually happens in the brain when we're meditating? So it's actually a form of biohacking. The brain is how I describe it, that we're changing the internal state of how our brain is structured and how it functions when we meditate. So 
don't fall victim to, you know, I see wellness lectures or segments on TV and people will point to one region of the brain and say, if you meditate, you're going to fall in love. If you meditate, this section of the brain lights up and you're no longer depressed. Poof. Right. Yeah. I wish the brain was that simple, but it really isn't. And what I want to start again from a 30,000 foot view is there is a complex change in multiple networks in your brain when you meditate for the first time, whether it's five or 20 minutes. And then there are other changes that happen in complex networks and the structure and function of the brain when you meditate regularly for, um, you know, they typically, the studies are four to six weeks. And then if you're a lifelong meditator, there's even different sets of changes we see. So immediate, uh, short-term and long-term changes that we see. And then always remember this, that just from a basic neuroscience part, our brain controls every organ system in the body. So when you meditate and there's changes in these networks, it positively impacts your hormone system, your digestion, your breathing, your respiration. So that's kind of something I want to tie into. So let's, can, we'll ta- start with the immediate effects of meditation. I, you know, if someone is listening and they haven't meditated for a long time, or they're like, oh, I did it once here and it felt so good. Or you were in my lecture and you meditated and you're like, I need to get back. Why did that feel so good in a room full of people? Um, or even if you put your headset on and listen to a guided meditation from an app, what immediately will happen when we have about three to five minutes of deep breathing. And for those that really look at the different types of yogic or pranayamic breathing, um, it's when the inhalation is shorter than the exhalation, you're actually helping to calm down the acute stress network or the fight or flight response. We know this, we blow off extra CO2. There is changes in the blood vessels that start in our carotid receptor at the neck and signal the autonomic nervous system of the brain to calm down and releasing what we call the start of, uh, you know, a parasympathetic responsive relaxation. And that's just in the first three to five minutes. And so the stress hormones go down. And we see, rather than being in fight or flight or a sympathetic response from the autonomic nervous system, we've now switched over like a light switch to the parasympathetic response. And it's cueing the brain to relax and calm down. And in that three to five minutes, we, we say, you know, I'm a chief wellness officer at Evolution Hospitality. Uh, we have over 7,000 employees. Power of Pause is our custom mindfulness program that I lead. That in that three to five minutes, we meditate as a team it could prevent you from having that angry outburst at a colleague or saying something that you're going to regret um, or um, mindlessly finishing an entire bag of potato chips because you're stress eating. That's exactly what happens in that three to five minutes in very simple terms. And now once you continue beyond the deep breathing and you decide that either you're going to sit in quiet, you're going to recite or repeat a mantra, a phrase or a word or stare at a candle, that benefit in your brain continues and that we know as the parasympathetic response releases, now you're going to start seeing some of the other feel-good hormones in the brain get stimulated. Um, Initially, it's some of our serotonin and oxytocin that feel good, sleep good, love hormone. And you're like, wait, I don't want to meditate in the day. I'm going to fall asleep. No, that doesn't happen. Because if you're sitting there long enough, I kind of describe you start to get something known like the runner's high, that a dopamine surge. It's 
uh, often with the spiritual teachers and we'll talk about, you know, coming to a sense of self or your inner knowing what that happens. And that we know can happen within 20 minutes. And then the physical responses of just one session in 20 minutes, we now know you've disengaged the networks that typically make someone anxious. If you're having ruminating thoughts in the frontal lobe, the executive center, and it actually disengages the anxiety center and brings back the executive function in the brain. So now after 20 minutes, if you have multiple browser windows open on your computer and brain and you've been stuck on a project, all of a sudden there starts to be an ability to improve your focus or improve your emotion to that. Um, and then a lot of benefits, even from one meditation session, you, we see the heart rate start to come down back to normal or lower blood pressure as well, digestion. So it can just having a meditation session, um, you know, uh, daily improves the ability of gut motility and it relaxes. So, you know, whether you're on the loose stool or constipated side, it just helps to bring that into balance. And so that's a very simplified term of what's going on. You can ask me more questions and that's immediate meditation, the, just the first part. Right. That's the immediate. And we're going to talk about short term, you know, longer term. But what's interesting about what you said is that it's almost like it interrupts a pattern, right? You know, the browser windows, you close them, it's like resetting, but you're interrupting a pattern, which I think is one of the most powerful things for so many people who are dealing with so many mental health issues, so much anxiety and anger and stress and just all of these emotions, especially since we've been in this with pandemic world, I don't even know how to describe it anymore. <laughs> um, you know, I think that there is just that alone to be able to interrupt this pattern that we might be in is so incredibly powerful. Yeah, completely. I love that you said it's interrupting a pattern. And you know, the vision that came to me while you were saying this, we started off saying emptying your mind. And I'm like, I actually mm. feel like what you're doing is cleaning up your mind. And listen, yes. I'm old school from the cassette tape generation. And I don't know if anybody listening to this podcast remembered having filing cabinets and offices that were full of papers and charts. And hey, you may be in an office. I mean, give a shout out on social media to Avanti and I, if you still got file cabinets in your office. And I feel like you're opening up the file cabinets of your brain and just allowing yourself to throw out files you don't need. And you're closing the files you don't need to focus on. And it's all of a sudden organized when you do that. It's, I, I love that analogy that was just came to me while you said that. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's this interruption, right? That resets everything and allows you to come back in a different state almost in a different, yeah, in a different state of mind, quite literally, like, cause that's the way you, you know, it yeah. is. It is. And that's why people feel good after the first meditation. So let's talk about intermediate meditation where Absolutely. you've been now meditating. Most of the studies say to the best of your ability, 20 minutes a day um, for four to eight weeks. That's when we start to see intermediate changes. You know, the first stage, we see a lot of chemical changes that are in the brain and the brain's like, oh, I like this girl. You know, mm -hmm. the second stage is actually so powerful. So that same area that we were discussing, the amygdala, and that it goes into the hippocampus, we now know your temporal lobe, when you start meditating regularly for four to eight weeks, actually starts to change. We release something known as BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, the same thing that we see when you exercise regularly, and that we're actually 
growing cells in the memory area of the hippocampus region. So, you know, when people say, oh, as you get older, your memory gets shot. No, it's because we have inflammation. We're not taking care of ourselves. We're sleep deprived, all of that. You can actually grow some of those cells back. I, I think of one of the quotes, the, the studies, I still love to quote the, to this day is Dr. Sarah Lazar's uh, study. She's out of the Herbert Benson Mind Body Medicine Institute at Harvard Medical School back in like 2014 or 15. She did the brain scans of, um, you know, I, I think 20 to 25 meditators and who had never meditated before and followed them and actually saw growth in this area. When, at, when I went to med school and in neurology, they were like, your brain cells don't grow back. Yeah, they do. You can stimulate growth and repatterning. So that's one thing to know, but it's not only your memory in that area, then there's like better emotional control. So look, you have triggers, Avanti. I have triggers. Stuff pisses off. We get emotional. Have you ever wondered like how some people can control emotions, good or bad? Like This helps that. And then as you get into it, it, this intermediate meditation, four to six weeks, what else starts to happen? The pathways that are complex from this hippocampus and the brain that are tied to um, prefrontal cortex, frontal cortex, and, and your uh, kind of pain center, we know that now you've interrupted the networks that when something happens, you get anxious, a little bit of tweak in your back and you have severe back pain that requires pain medicine. You're, you have such severe depression. You're in a brain fog. Those networks now are overrided and new pathways are created in your brain that are now actually lifting you out of that depression. We know in clinical studies that have now going on for a decade that starting a regular meditation practice for 20 minutes a day in somebody who has refractory depression is as powerful as starting a, taking an antidepressant drug. Mm -hmm. Incredible. So it is. And the studies are there for anxiety, for chronic pain, for uh, so many conditions. And so, you know, we don't have time, but, you know, th this is just kind of a very simplified overview of the structure and function of the brain. And so, you know, Bante, I'll be honest, I've had a regular meditation and people, if they've seen my TED talk and we'll give it in your show notes, no. Um, since about 2010, when I got sick and went into life-saving surgery, I mean, back in those days, my aunties were giving me cassette tapes to learn meditation. Like that's right. How, and you know, initially I got to be real with you. I saw the benefit right away and I lifted out of the burnout and the depression and I didn't need post-op pain meds. And then you feel better and you're like, oh, it's okay if I forgot to meditate today, I'm mm -hmm. traveling. And, and it would be like, uh, interruption of my brain for like just three, four weeks. And I wasn't meditating regularly. And all of a sudden that anxiety, busy brain pattern came back and I'm like, Oh, this is what happens when you stop meditating. So it's kind of like losing muscle mass. If you've been going to the gym and pumping iron and taking protein, and then you take a month or two off and you're like, wait, my muscles aren't as lean as before. That's exactly what's going on with the brain when with intermediate meditation. Yeah. And so is that for the listeners, what is meant by neuroplasticity? Because this is a word, this is a term that gets thrown Over out is in the studies. Yep. It's in the articles. People will hear about it in this wellness world, in this very health focused world. So let's, let's just define what does that mean? Is that what you're talking about? Yes, to some degree. Neuroplasticity actually is a neuroscientific term that has been oversimplified. And sometimes I get Indian auntie chest pain, just thinking of how it gets uh, <laughs> simplified, right? Neuroplasticity right. in its um, finest terms does mean 
uh, an ability of a brain cell and network to change and adapt, Mm -hmm. whether that is a good or a bad thing. So neuroplasticity was studied in epilepsy, right? And that, um, that if one part of the brain was seizing and we surgically removed it, another part of the brain could be trained to start having seizures. That's not a good thing in the brain. But the same thing can happen about neuroplasticity, we know, with improving the brain's ability to its cellular function to help in processes like memory and emotional control and mood and um, feeling calm instead of anxious or depressed can happen with a regular meditation practice. I think what is challenging for me is people make that five-step leap, and I don't know you could speak to this as well. When we look at other modalities of bringing yourself to present centered awareness, but that's not meditation. So let's think of like EFT, emotional freedom technique, or um, other modalities. People will be like, oh, that's neuroplasticity. And there there actually isn't studies on that. Now, what EFT or other modalities of, of healing are doing, um, and I'm, I'm blanking on some of the things that I hear about, but along the energy medicine lines, all the different trends and beautiful things that are out there, like healing hands therapy, et cetera. There's not actual study that if you do healing hands or EFT, here's change in neuroplasticity, where we looked at the, you know, spec scans of a brain or a functional MRI of a brain. But what we do know is when you do EFT, it starts to calm you down. And then you should sit down and meditate, right? Is is the key. It's the same thing if you're feeling really good and you're like, oh, Romy, my mindfulness practices when I'm running or swimming. I always ask my executives who say that, well, then could you sit down just for five minutes after you're done swimming or running and meditate then? That's helping to anchor in that mindfulness and meditation. Um, so that was a long-winded answer to neuroplasticity is that we've oversimplified it. And what I just described is yes, that it's the abilities brain cells to adapt and change the way they structure and function. And it can be a beneficial thing or a harmful thing. Right, right. And so it's not always a positive thing, but we can hopefully go in the positive direction by a regular meditation practice. And then this is just like your, your sister doctor warning, like be careful of all the supplements and the energy drinks out there and people saying, come to this class and learn this, my Avanti or Romy's technique. We're going to improve neuroplasticity. Like, yeah, no, I'd like to see a brain science study first, but yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love that you, you clarified that. Okay. So let's go into the long-term effects. So we've done this four to six weeks. I've been meditating every day for 20 minutes. Now what's going to happen if I keep going? You keep it going for years. And I mean, I call it nature's best beauty trick. When we meditate for a long time, I'm going to start maybe in a more esoteric place. It changes our mind and our body and our spirits. And Avante, I don't know about you, but one thing I know is when I'm around people who've had a meditation or mindfulness-based practice, and they've been doing it for years, don't you just see this glow from them? And you're like, girl, what did you just get a facial? Was that Botox? No, that's meditation, right? Right. It's benefits that we know in clinical studies to promote longevity. Mm-hmm. and youthfulness, both in the brain and the rest of the body. And why mm-hmm. is that? Is that we know as you meditate regularly, it has this potent anti-inflammatory effect. The first two things I talked about were, sure, acute and intermediate anti-inflammatory effect. But as you go on and you meditate long-term, we know that when we take the brain scans of somebody who just started to meditate and they had all those 
great hormonal changes and experiences versus someone who's meditating long-term, they may not get that immediate dopamine high every time they sit down to meditate or that feel-good serotonin buzz. And, and, and I, I remember this, and many people who meditate, you know, you're going to get six, nine months into your meditation practice or two years, and you're like, why am I sitting here and not feeling calm? All of a sudden, this feeling of anger just came up out of nowhere or grief or rage or a prickling sensation. And mindfulness now teaches us not to be attached to that emotion. Just say, oh, this is anger. Uh, we often say it's some of your subconscious memories or thoughts clearing. But what happens is, and I'm human and this happens to me often too, is you'll sit there and be like, why is this anger coming up? And we immediately attach a story. Oh, it was because yesterday somebody at work like went off on me and we attach stories. And then it's, it's a risk to stay. But what's really happening is a deeper stage of healing psychology, consciously and subconsciously. And this is why, for example, in addiction medicine, as people are going through recovery and rehab from drug and alcohol addiction, that meditating regularly can completely change the structure of their brain that they no longer are getting triggered for having a craving. Right. right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's it. We know that people who chronically uh, meditate or meditate long-term, overall, their memory and cognition scores are higher than people that are meditating short-term or have never meditated at all. So we give neuropsychology battery tests, and we know that long-term, with the change and improvement and function of the brain, that they not only have a better memory, but their processing skills, their executive anal analytical skills are superior, right? Um, how many of the most brilliant CEOs will tell you, I've had a meditation practice for 20 to 30 years. And they know, they, they know how to do that, not just this trend and pulling up an app. Um, we also know that people who meditate long-term are less likely than to develop depression or anxiety, or if they suffered from a mental health disease earlier, they're less likely to have a refractory episode. Um, we also know in patients with epilepsy, chronic refractory epilepsy, that when they meditate regularly and they're, you know, helping that stress response, that they are resetting a seizure threshold. So things that would normally stress the brain out and cause a seizure in a known epilepsy patient, like sleep deprivation, is less likely to happen. So what do all these things have in common? It's when the brain starts to misfire and the addict gets a craving or uh, epileptic brain is going to seize or a depressed patient is going to have the you know inflammation that leads back to a depressive episode, that that's less likely to happen. It's like you've permanently started to clean out your filing cabinets. Right. right. But what's even more powerful is typically for the non-meditating person, the brain is a sponge for negative thoughts, emotions, and experiences. We now know that a pattern of emotional resilience builds in people that chronically meditate. And those are the people who are like, how come they just go with the flow? Like that pissed me off and th their feathers aren't ruffled. It doesn't mean that they're not paying attention and they didn't notice that something bad or an action was done towards them. They just don't react. It doesn't register as negative. It's, it's literally they're rising above the toxicity. Right. Because it's almost what you were saying is that they have that experience while they're meditating. They don't attach to it and then it clears so that they're not taking that anger, that anxiety, that depression into their interactions with other people, with 
you know, their life experiences out in the world, right? They've dealt with it while they're sitting in that chair or on that mat. And all of a sudden, the things like the memories that we have that would trigger a bad memory, you know, we know this, this is human nature, Monty. You and I are the same way. We're not above this. Is mm -hmm. something is unresolved from childhood or uh, early adulthood, uh, um, you know, any, any size trauma, small or minor, somebody could come along and say something really harmless. And it triggers you because of other patterns of subconscious things of somebody just said, you should be vegetarian and it's triggering a trauma and you're now finding yourself yelling at a stranger about this rather than being like, thank you for your opinion, you know? And, and so when we chronically meditate, it almost doesn't register that like that trigger has been healed. Right. And so what's so interesting about what you're saying is that, you know, this, this goes back to sort of our shared perspective being Western trained MDs, South Asian women who grew up with yoga and Ayurveda as these ancient, beautiful healing traditions in our families, right? And so it's almost like what, what you're translating right now for me and the, the listeners is this brain science that we know we've, we've studied it, but this ability to connect into yourself and to perhaps something else in the universe, whatever that is, it changes how you respond to things. You, you have a different, it, it's almost like you're you're dealing with the traumas from the past, from a past life, if you believe that. Whatever it is, there's something that's happening there that is beyond the realm of this world. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's what I'm thinking about while well, you're saying that. That's this. where the spirituality comes in. And I always, you know, when I train people in meditation or mindfulness in corporate teams, I have to be very mindful of, of, of course, dealing with diverse groups and we need to do it for everyone. I want to honor kind of going back to the spiritual pathways of all the different major religions and cultures of the world that some type of meditation or mindfulness practice is a part of that. You know, we are not just a brain. We are not just a heart or an endocrine system. We are a mind, body, and spirit. And that we all have our spirit and there's always this inner knowing, whether you call, I call it your internal soul compass. Some people call it intuition. Some people call it, you know, their connection to divine, whatever that word is for you is if we're not learning and training ourselves to be still and present and go within and not react to what's going out, we miss what internal soul compass is directing us to do. I just want to ask you one last question as we ask, wrap up our more. time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, if I offer up the phrase to catalyze healing, what comes up for you? You know, my initial thought, if I had to have a human sister moment with you is to feel overwhelmed. And sometimes when we think of healing, all the shoulda, woulda, couldas come in, you know, I know I should be eating cleaner. I would have exercised this morning, but I had an 8am business call. I could be doing better with my sleep. And so I think for me, catalyze healing is knowing when the coulda, shoulda, wouldas come up in your brain, that's a busy brain. And that's not your mm. internal soul compass talking to you. I invite you to do something that will invite you to be still. And for those of you that have a busy brain, we talk often of being still and silently meditating will actually make the anxiety worse. So we actually ask people to do five to 10 minutes of a repetitive motion thing with and without digital devices, such as washing dishes or walking outside um, and counting your steps, um, shuffling a deck of cards, and then sit and be still. And that's what catalyze healing is is getting rid of the shoulda, woulda, couldas 
and really saying, that's my busy brain. That's not my best self. And going into your internal soul compass and asking in this moment, what is it that my spirit really needs to heal today in my brain and body and for my team? Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at avantikumarsingh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember, with the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.